here, and uh, we're jumping into Hebrews chapter 7 um, today. And uh, as I've been, been studying, I, uh, I, it, it is a bit of a puzzle, um, Hebrews chapter 7, and there are more texts like this. And, and this is an image that came to mind because it's just kind of fresh for me. Um, I'm putting a new stereo in my, in my truck, and I don't know if you have done this recently, um, but when you buy an aftermarket stereo, there are a lot of wires that are off the back of that thing. Literally 32 wires come off the back of that radio, and, uh, and I have to figure out where all of them, uh, where all of them go to be able to have a new radio in my truck. And I'm second thinking the idea of having a new radio in my car, but you know, one by one, there's, the, there's some directions and Google was a great help, and, but I have to actually look at every single wire that comes out of that wiring harness to figure out where it goes on the wiring harness in the, in the truck. If I don't hook it up correctly, um, it's kind of the force for the trees problem. Like if I just look at the forest and just dump that stereo in the front of my truck and turn it on, it will not work. I've got to get down to the level of the trees. I've got to get wire by wire. And wouldn't you know it that Amazon sends, sends me a junk wiring harness. So I'm plugging it in, I think I'm doing it right, and there's one wire missing. When one wire is missing, guess what? It comes out, goes up, comes in, goes out, goes out, goes in. It just keeps doing this inside the front of my truck. You gotta have all the wires in place. And in Hebrews chapter seven is, is a little bit like that. You, you have to get all the little pieces and you have to spend some time looking at the trees so that you do understand the forest. Now we could skate over chapter seven and just say that Jesus is high priest in the order of Melchizedek and his priesthood goes on for eternity. And that would be true. That would be true, just as was said as we were doing our opening. That would be true. But our understanding, it could be far more rich if we dive in and look at some of the trees of chapter seven. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna spend three weeks on chapter seven. And we're going to pick apart some of the nuts and bolts of what's going on there so that we get to the end. When we get to the end, there is a sense of, of a, not only just accomplishment of understanding it, but there is a richness that actually blesses our soul and a greater confidence in who God is because we understand it. Are, we with, are you with me? Okay, let's jump in. Chapter 7 is really the same as the rest of Hebrews. As you, as you look at it more closely, it really does have the same message as the rest of Hebrews. Jesus is better. And my desire for you as you read this letter is that you trust him more, that your faith grows. You have a greater confidence in God because you understand Hebrews chapter 7. It has three different ways 
uh, that it goes about this. There's a, there's a historical perspective to chapter 7. That means that there are people, places, and times that are pointing you in a direction. They start somewhere, they have a significance, and it, and it has a trajectory that, that, that it lunges you in the direction of Jesus is coming, and he is great, and he is the fulfillment of all that has been promised. So there's a historical perspective. There also is a theological perspective. To understand the priesthood is critically important for us. If you remember, the the writer of Hebrews, back in chapter 5, he mentions Melchizedek. And then he bails on it for a moment to in some way verbally spank his readers so that they understand if you don't, if you don't dive into the scriptures, if you, don't, if, if you become lazy, if you become a sluggard with the scriptures, there's going to be a lack of understanding and a lack of a richness to your relationship with the Lord, and the worst case scenario might happen, that you actually turn back to Judaism and you fall away from the faith. And then he comes back here in chapter seven and says, this is what I wanted to talk to you about. This is really, really important. The priesthood of Jesus is really, really important. And how I'm gonna get to your heart in the priesthood of Jesus, and I'm going to go through the priest, Melchizedek. There's also the human condition. We need to be reminded over and over again about the human condition. It's not that it doesn't affect us every day. It does affect us. On a daily basis, we are confronted with our sin and our inadequacy to save ourselves, are we not? But we need to be reminded when it comes to this so that we don't just look at truth and look at the gospel and forget why it's so important and why it's so valuable. It's extremely valuable because of the human condition, because of the condition of my heart. The place where chapter 7 is going is verse 25. Why don't you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter seven, so that you're ready for our reading. I'm gonna put 725 up on the screen though. Hebrews 725 says this, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is where the writer's going. This is where he's headed. And it it says everything about the human condition. And it says everything about the resolve that God has provided to attack the human condition. And not only temporarily for a fix it, but eternally that we might be secure in him. He is able to save. Save from what? Save from what? He is able to save. The word save is to rescue. He's able to rescue. He is, he's able to change the course. He's able to intercept the direction that you're going. He's able to save you from the condemnation that your sin has bought you. Save you from the judgment that is placed upon your sin. 
It is none other than the wrath of God. And when you think about it this way, he is actually saying, he is able to save you from God himself who has placed a judgment upon sin. It's grave, is it not? It's extremely important. The human condition is able to save them to the uttermost. Uttermost is, it, there, there is nothing beyond it. The uttermost is able to save completely never to be revisited, to the uttermost God can save. And he's able to do this for those who draw near to God through him, through Christ Jesus. The provision has been made. Christ has paid the price for sin. Since he always lives to make intercession. The word intercession should never again come across your eyes and not light up for you. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, intercedes on our behalf, not only temporarily, not only, not only every day except for holidays and weekends, he never takes a moment off. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He always, for all eternity, intercedes on your behalf. This is where he's going. Like I said, that's the forest. That's the truth of chapter 7. But his target audience is a group of people who have this hiccup in their heart and mind called Judaism. And their temptation is to look at the things that are present and worship them like Abraham and Moses. He, they, their temptation was to look at these rock stars of the faith and worship them and follow them instead of who they were pointing to. So the writer steps outside of these rock stars and he goes to a man who is very obscure named Melchizedek. And what he's going to do is he's going to slowly work his way from Melchizedek is a great man all the way to Jesus is even greater. That's where we're headed. Let's read Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll pray. Would you stand as we read God's word? I'm a little worked up, kind of warm already. Let's read God's word. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, 
having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Father, we, um, we come before you with meager, meager means. We don't have the means within ourselves to, to interpret the scriptures without the influence and control of the Holy Spirit. We don't have the power, I don't have the power to teach rightly the scriptures without the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have the means to understand it well enough to interpret it. We don't have the means enough to apply it. So God, we, we hide behind the cross knowing that you have forgiven us, knowing that you have called us son and sons and children of the Most High God, not because of our means, but because of what you have done for us and you have made provision. You have made provision that you would illumine our thinking, that you would help us to see the scriptures and that you would apply it to our lives in a way that we would be encouraged, that we would be admonished, that we would walk away with a greater love for you than we had when we began. So Father, we lean heavily upon your grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Have a seat. So who is, who is Melchizedek? Who is Melchizedek? We, we start with a name and a story, and that's where the, the writer begins of Hebrews chapter 7. The Bible mentions Melchizedek a total of 11 times. And it's 11 times that he's mentioned here in Hebrews. Chapters 5... Chapter 5, verses 6 and 10 is where he's mentioned, and then chapter 6, verse 20. In chapter 6, verse 20, if you remember, he's actually reciting Psalm 110. That's another place where he's mentioned. But as Lad mentioned last week, there's a pause from chapter 6, now here until chapter 7. In chapter 7, he unloads this description and this picture of why Melchizedek is so important. We begin with his name. His name, <clears throat> excuse me, his name is important because it tells you of the offices that he held. The name Melchizedek, <clears throat> excuse me, means king of righteousness. A king is 
a ruler, a king is a ruler of a kingdom, has a domain that he oversees and, and cares for, just like Jesus has a kingdom. He is a king of righteousness is what his name means. He also is a king of a place. The place where his kingdom is, is Salem. He is called the king of righteousness and also the king of peace, like Jesus. Salem ought to be somewhat familiar. When you hear the word Jerusalem, you understand that Jerusalem is the city of peace. This man, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, very well may have been one of the early kings of Jerusalem. Psalm 76, verse 2, speaking of Jesus and Salem, says this, His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. You ought to hear the significance beginning to well just from the name of Melchizedek, that his connection to Jesus is unquestionable. He's the king of righteousness, the king of peace, and his abode is Salem, Jerusalem. He's also a priest of the Most High God. He's a priest of the Most High God. A priest is an, is an intercessor. A priest represents the people before God. And it's not just any God. When it says the Most High God, Melchizedek was a man of Canaan. And in the time of, the, of this writing, there were many, many gods that were being worshipped. When he says it's the most high God, this is the God who is the creator God. He is the great God. He is the God of all gods, so to speak. He is the most priest of the most high God. This separates him from the pagan priests. He's separated from the pagan priests just like Jesus. This never happens, you know a king and a priest holding the same, holding those two positions together. It's kind of like in the U.S. government, the legislative and the executive and the judicial branch. You, you can't have one person who oversees all three. It's to provide for an evil king not abusing his priestly power or the other way around, uh, an evil priest abusing his kingly power. You know, just as interesting as Melchizedek holding these two positions at the same time is the timing of when he was a priest. You realize that he was a priest before Moses, before Egypt, before the Exodus, before the law was given. He is recognized as a priest of the Most High God. If you remember, the priesthood, the way we know it in Judaism, is established through the Levitical law. And it is reserved for the line of Levi. Well, Levi wasn't born yet. And he is a priest of the Most High God. That's significant. It's significant. And the story that we learn uh, the most we can about Melchizedek is in Genesis 14. Genesis 14, I'm going to have it up on the screen here for you, but you can turn there if you like. Here's the backstory of Genesis 14. 
about 2050 BC, 2050 before Christ, there were Mesopotamian kings. You see that region of Mesopotamia between the Euphrates and the Tigris River? That's not exactly, there's not perfect borders there, but that's the general region of Mesopotamia. There were four kings that came from Mesopotamia down into Canaan, and they were wreaking havoc with the people of Canaan. Now, there were five kings in Canaan that rose up and rebelled against these four kings. Well, the Mesopotamian kings would have nothing of it. After 12 years of the Mesopotamian kings wreaking havoc with Canaan, these four kings rise up in revolt, and for one year they have a sense of peace. But the Mesopotamian kings say, uh-uh, and they come back with an even greater world of hurt for Canaan. Well, these five kings come together again with a sense of resolve. And, and they want to go to battle with these four kings. And they, they want to go to, the bat, to battle, and they, they decide to have this battle right down in the southern portion of the Dead Sea. This is their home territory. Now, they must not have scoped things out very well, because when they got to the battlefield, there were tar pits on the battlefield, and they got stuck, and it slowed them down in an amazing way, and they actually lost the battle on their own turf, and they ran for the hills. And these four kings from Mesopotamia, they took all the goods and all the people as prisoner that they would like. And this, this is where things pick up with Abram and then eventually Melchizedek. See, when they took off, these five kings, when they took off, sorry, the four kings from Mesopotamia, when they took off, they took some people with them, and one of the people they took with them was Lot, Abraham's, then called Abram, his nephew. And you got to hear the story as it goes with Abraham, because this man is a stud. Listen. Genesis 14, beginning with verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men. That means they were trained in battle. Born in his house, 318 of them. Now that might sound like a lot, but it isn't a lot. That's not a lot of guys. When we're talking about four kings from Mesopotamia, which is a very big region, there's a lot of people that are winning those battles. He takes 318 guys. And went in pursuit as far as Dan, that's way up north. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. That means he chased them out of town way up north. Then he brought back all the possessions, also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, now that's the first cheese head in the Bible, he also lost his battle. After the defeat of Chedorlaomer, I have no idea if that's how you say that, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, that's one of the five, 
the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, also known as the valley of Kidron, just east of Jerusalem. So now you know where we're at. Dead Sea, Jerusalem. Right between the Dead Sea and Jerusalem, that's where they're at. He went out to meet him, and verse 18, here's his name. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, that is Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed him. He blessed him. And he said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. You have to pack that away. The fact that he gave him a tenth of everything is really significant. If Abram had not done that, the whole teaching falls on its face. But Abram, in humility, he gave a tenth of everything. Like I said, I think personally Abraham was a stud. He's a William Wallace kind of character. But the teaching is not necessarily for our understanding of Abraham. That is a really good study. But the way that Melchizedek responds and who Melchizedek is, is where we want to focus our attention. John Calvin says this about Melchizedek. He says, amid the corruption of the world, he, Melchizedek, alone, and that land, in that land, was an upright and sincere cultivator and guardian of religion. This was not a pretty place where Melchizedek was a a priest of God Most High. Yet his reputation and his application of the truth and his movement towards God's people and God's plan was tremendous. That ought to be something that we draw from this man. Let's look at this man three ways Three ways, as we look at Melchizedek, three ways that we see that Melchizedek loves God most. Three ways that Melchizedek loves God most. The first one is this. Melchizedek celebrates God's program. He celebrates God's program. It's as if to say when you, when you hear of the Good News Club being talked about here at Leary Chapel, in your heart resonates, yes, God. Yes, God, I'm so glad that they are there. I'm so glad that they're bringing the gospel to those children in the public school. Melchizedek celebrates God's program. And how do we know that? He brings bread and wine When God wins with Abraham, Melchizedek brings the party. Melchizedek sees God at work and he doesn't hesitate to celebrate it. You know, in this passage, from a theological perspective, Catholics will look at this passage and say, there it is, there's the first breaking of bread, there's the first Eucharist, there's the first moment of transubstantiation, there's the first moment of the Mass. I personally don't see it with respect. I personally don't see it. Some Protestants say that this is communion. 
This is an Old Testament sign of the new covenant. It's a, it's a shadow of what's coming. The bread and the wine representing the, the body and the blood of Christ, a sacrifice that's going to be made. Jonathan Edwards was pretty strong about this. He said the bread and the wine signified the same blessing of the covenant of grace that the bread and wine do in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Melchizedek's coming to meet him with such a seal of the covenant of grace on the occasion of this victory reveals that it was a pledge of God's fulfillment of the same covenant. That sounds pretty strong to me. It's, It's hard for me to go that far, but it does seem significant, does it not? that it is bread and wine. It is bread and wine. The same things that Jesus shared in the upper room with his disciples. It does seem significant. At the very least, this is a a tremendous moment of celebrating what God is doing. Melchizedek had this, this heartbeat for God's program that said, there is nothing too small This is a right way to mark this moment where Abraham was faithful to God and and God did his work through Abraham and here the people of God get to see God at work and we're gonna mark the moment rightly. Whatever it represents, exactly. It is Melchizedek's love for God that is spilling out in blessing of Abraham. Just a, just a moment of reflection on that. Don't you love the moment where somebody sees what's happening in your life? Where, <clears throat> what, whether as, as Chris was saying in our, in our opening, it, whether it's a, a winning moment or a, a suffering moment, isn't it a phenomenon in your heart when somebody sees what's happening and they mark the moment with you, or even better yet, they mark the moment for you, they bring something of themselves, they bring something of an offering to say, listen, I see what's happening in your world. I see what God is doing. And, and, I, and I'm not really sure exactly what I'm supposed to do in this moment, but I just want you to know, I, I want to bless what God is doing in your life. And I know it may be complicated, or I know I can't celebrate and rejoice the same way you're rejoicing, but I, I just want you to know, I see you. I see you. I don't want to read too much into Melchizedek's motives here, because there's only a few scriptures given about him. But I know this much. He saw Abram. He saw Abram. And he met him in his moment where God did something really significant. And I can only imagine, Abram's human. I can only imagine how God him to rejoice in his soul. Can I ask you to reflect for a moment? What kind of power do you hold to bless what God is doing? What kind of power do you hold in your children's lives? What kind of power do you hold in your church's existence? What kind of power do you hold for a coworker that you might actually see and meet them right where they're at? That's what Melchizedek did. 
Melchizedek shows that he loves God's, God most because he, he celebrates God's program in their life, in his life. Second thing is this. In verse 18, we realize that, that Melchizedek blesses God's people, specifically Abram. Blesses God's people. He doesn't only see the program, the thing that God is doing, but he actually sees specific people. There were a whole lot of people that were involved in this win, but Melchizedek, he proclaims blessing from God Most High upon Abram specifically. You know, we don't know exactly what Melchizedek knows about Abram. You almost want to read into this passage in Genesis 14 and say, he must have got a download from God about Abram. Why is he, why is he so in tune to what's happening here? We don't really know exactly. We know that they're contemporaries, right? And we also know that they lived pretty close. It was only like 50 miles away where, where Abram was to where the king of Salem was at, Jerusalem. So they lived in the same region. So he really may have known more about Abram than we understand from scripture. More importantly, we, we, we know that Melchizedek saw Abram's win as from the Lord, his character. We see how Melchizedek watches Abram and he sees his character as he returns from battle. Why is this, why is this so significant? Do you remember the promises that God gave to Abram? Do you remember the promises that were given? A, a son that he would make of him a great nation that he would give him a land. This is what Abram knew up to this point. In Genesis chapter 12, remember how, how Lad reviewed, last week he reviewed the story of how God interacted with Abram. Well, this is what Abram knew up to this point. Genesis chapter, chapter 12, verses one to three say this. Now the Lord said to Abram, now, you got to track with me on this. Understanding what's going on with Abram will help us understand why Melchizedek cares so deeply for what's happening here. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Move down to verse five. He's moving into Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. When the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. The land that he promised him is the land where he just kicked some serious Mesopotamian butt. Now the way he comes back from battle was not, hey, hey, why don't you all just get on my train and will set me up as king. 
God promised me the land, and you see how, how good I can be in battle. He didn't come back and say, listen, now is the time. God is going to give us the land. How easy would it be to think that this military victory would be God's message to him that now I'm giving you the land? Instead of establishing himself as a new king, he chooses to honor God by giving him a tenth of all the spoils. And if you read on in that Genesis 14 passage, the king of Sodom actually approaches him and says, why don't you keep a whole bunch of the spoils? You're the one who led this battle anyway. And Abram's response, I don't want anybody I don't want anybody to ever be able to say, I got rich off of this. And he turns it down. Why? <laughs> I think it's because of what Lad was saying last week. See, Abram was on a program. His program was trust God and be patient. That was God's program for Abram. And I think Melchizedek, in my way of saying it, I think Melchizedek could smell that. The smell of humility, the smell of, of him walking with God and trusting God more than riches, more than fame, more than anything that a, a victory like this could produce in his life. It sounds, it sounds a lot to me like Melchizedek, instead of jumping on Abraham's presidential campaign committee, Melchizedek, Melchizedek, he loves God most. He loves God more than any, any fame that this moment could, could gain him, any riches that could come his way. And he watches the humility of Abram, and he says, yes, yes and Amen. And he blesses Abram. He blesses him specifically because he sees the character that God had produced in this man. My third reason why, third reason why we see that Melchizedek loves God most is in verse 20 of chapter 14 of Genesis. He blesses God most high. He blesses God most high. And I know that sounds just very simple. But is that not the heartbeat of someone who loves God most? Melchizedek loved God. Immediately after seeing God's program and throwing the party of bread and wine, immediately after blessing Abraham, he looks to God of heaven and says, Lord God, I bless your name. I see what you're doing, and I see your man, and I bless your name. He gives glory to God. You know what I think this is for, for Melchizedek? I think this is Melchizedek's moment of saying, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. I bless your name. I bless you, God most high, for what you're doing. It is well with my soul. And does that not sound like Jesus? 
who says, not my will, but thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. Three ways that we see Melchizedek loves God most. Now where we're going from here, this is the, this is the setup. This is, this is some, of the, some, of the, some of the trees before we get to the forest. But where he's going from here, after we know the story, after we know a little bit more about who Melchizedek is, is he, he's going to go on to teach us about why Melchizedek is needed to explain to these people that, that not only is Melchizedek a, a, a man or a priest whose, whose, uh, whose role goes on forever, Jesus, Jesus, his priesthood is eternal. Next week, we pick up in verse 4. And we talk about the priesthood of Jesus. Can I ask you, as you reflect on a, the life of a, of a man like Melchizedek, I'm not asking you anything. I'm just, I just want to encourage you. It's easy to look at a character in the Bible and, and see morally and spiritually, how rich and how good a person can be in God's description of him. And we look at ourselves and we say, I could never be. <laughs> I, could, I could never be. It's I, I can't be that kind of guy. And I say, yes, that's true. That's true. But how gracious is God? How gracious is God that he has given us a high priest in Jesus who intercedes for us in all of our failings, in all of our sin, in all of our shortcomings, in all of our inability to save ourselves or deal with our own sin. There is a savior, a high priest, even in the order of Melchizedek, whose priesthood goes on forever and ever and ever. Even in this moment, as we're learning, as we're trying to grapple with God's word and grapple with who is this man and why am I, I'm just, I'm not like him, but I long to be like him. God, in your grace, interceding on our behalf every single moment of every single day. Worship in these moments in the quietness of your heart as we even sing together, worship God in these moments who is a priest interceding on your behalf that he might even change you. He might even shape you into the image of his son. Even looking like a guy like Melchizedek who loves God most. Amen? Amen.